Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Welcome along to Gateway. Thrilled that you're here with us again this week. Um, Just so nice to be back um, gathering and worshipping together. Hey, I have to say that um, my last week's sermon got more comments than, than any sermon I have preached in 40 years. Seriously. You loved the topic, and you loved the length, and the only thing that disturbs me more than your soundbite appreciation of the length of the sermon was that uh, I actually really enjoyed preaching it. So um, one, one thing will continue this week, the other one will not. Um, the subject, I'm sorry, is the one that's going to continue. The length, uh, not so much, okay. <clears throat> I want to do a series with you uh, about eating, uh, about meals with Jesus. If I, I was in a small group, uh, if we were taking a connect group or perhaps in one of the smaller churches that we've pastored, I probably would have had a piece of paper on your seat with a pen, and I would have asked you to take a moment and finish this sentence for me. And the sentence would start, the Son of Man came. And I would ask you to fill in the end of that sentence. The Son of Man came doing what? And I wonder what you'd say. You'd say things, I'm sure, like, well, he came to preach the gospel. The Son of Man came to heal the sick. The Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says something very similar to that, not exactly in that phraseology. Maybe the Son of Man came to bring the kingdom of God. And all of those things, of course, are true, but the actual phrase in Scripture, the Son of Man came, is used specifically three times, and none of which describe the activities I just mentioned, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, destroying the works of the devil or bringing the kingdom of God. It's used several times. Firstly, in Matthew chapter 18, Luke chapter 9, and Luke chapter 19, it says the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. So we're familiar with that, and I'm sure that some of you would have put that on your piece of paper. The second one, found in Matthew chapter 20 and Mark chapter 10, is the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And some of you, I'm sure, would have remembered that phrase. Then, thirdly, Matthew chapter 11 and Luke chapter 7, it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And it's like, what? I mean, the others we get. Surely that's just a kind of a throwaway line, and it really doesn't matter that much. It's not that important. But I'd like to suggest to you that the first two have to do with purpose. They are statements of purpose. They give us the reason that the Son of Man came. He came as a servant to seek and save the lost by giving his life as a ransom for many. I think the third statement, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, is a statement of method. That's how he achieved the purpose. That's how he reconciled men and women, lost men and women to himself, by eating and drinking. And I suspect the immediate response is, what? What are you talking about, Don? He did that through the work of the cross. And I would say, yes, of course he did, and I'm not about to uh, unleash some weird doctrine on you. 
I'm not talking, obviously, about the crucial moment of substitutionary atonement that took place on the cross. What I'm saying is that in eating and drinking, he came in terms of, that, that's about method. That's about how he reached out to lost men and women, how he related to humankind, how he approached us in our lostness, how he sought us out. He came eating and drinking. He didn't run projects, he didn't establish ministries, he didn't create programs, and he didn't put on events. What he did was eat meals with people. He came eating and drinking. And there's a method in the madness, if I could be so bold as to put it that way. Scholar George Myerson recently completed a study on what makes people happy. And after 250 pages of tracking moments of joy throughout people's lives, he concluded that people are most happy and most open when they are with friends, gathered round a table with good food, conversation, and laughter. Perhaps Jesus knew way before the ladies did that the way to the heart is through the stomach. <laughs> and food is a significant theme in Jesus' life and ministry. His, his favorite image of the bliss and joy of the kingdom of God and of salvation are a banquet where everybody is sitting around a table with good food and, and, uh, and good wine. I, I don't think it's coincidental that his first public ministry occurred at a feast at a wedding banquet recorded in John chapter 2. And we know from the book of Revelation that when the new heavens and the new earth are about to be inaugurated, it will be at a wedding feast, at a banquet. The primary image of the kingdom of God seems to focus around this idea of eating and drinking. And if the primary image, the primary biblical image of the kingdom of God is a banquet, then many artists, famous or favorite image of hell is a table where we sit completely alone. I think one of the most haunting photographs I think I've ever seen is a picture of the fabulously wealthy oil tycoon John Paul Getty eating at his mansion in Sutton Place, dining alone. What a tragic picture. I have never preached on, and actually in 40 years I have never heard anyone else preach on eating and drinking. Now, of course, I've heard it mentioned. It's usually mentioned in the negative. Not too much eating, that's gluttony. And certainly in evangelical circles, not too much drinking. That's drunkenness. That neglect should actually surprise us since the very first recorded words of God in the Bible to humankind are found in Genesis 2.16, you may eat freely. And the very last command recorded in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 is, you may drink freely. And somebody has said, those commands are the bookends and everything in between is a table. Jesus clearly spent a serious amount of time eating and drinking, so much so that the Pharisees accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. That challenge, by the way, was an allusion back into an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 21, where it spoke about a rebellious son who was a glutton and a drunkard, and the proper response, of course, was that he should be stoned. Maybe the Pharisees had something in mind. J.D. Crossan, infamously associated with the Jesus Seminar, provocatively described Jesus as the ultimate party animal. Now, given how we think about that phrase, a party animal, I think it leaves the wrong impression entirely. 
because Jesus was neither a drunkard nor a glutton. Robert Karras is perhaps more balanced when he comments, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. It's a major theme that runs through Luke's gospel. I think I mentioned this last week, but I love Len Sweet's definition of the gospel. He says, Jesus ate good food with bad people. And I want, over the next little while, it probably will be a short series, but I want to explore a little the whole idea of Jesus and food, the Bible and meals, what it meant for Jesus and what it might mean for us as his disciples. Food clearly matters. Meals mattered in the ministry of Jesus. And I suspect that that's somewhat of a reflection of the culture of that time, and it's still true in the Middle East today, that meals and food are full of significance. The role of meals and food don't mean the same in every culture. You don't have to be a cultural anthropologist to discern that. In the postmodern West, we don't see meals and food in the way that they did in biblical times. Actually, we don't even see food in the way that other cultures in our present time do. In the West, we have a tendency to reduce food to fuel. It's what we need to keep our machine-like bodies functioning at an optimal level. And in advanced societies where speed and convenience and cheap prices have become the most valued characteristic in food consumption, it's hardly surprising that eating has become largely thoughtless and irresponsible. We have a hurried breakfast if we have one at all as we rush on our way to work or school. We throw a few items in a lunch bag for a midday snack. We eat food on the run. We consume enough fuel to keep the machine functioning. The figures that I'm going to quote to you now are from an American study, an American situation, but rather than dismiss them by virtue of that, I suspect that we are significantly influenced by that culture, and the trends you see in the States are very much the trends that you observe also here in New Zealand. Americans eat an average of one in every five meals in a car, just as God designed us to do. Actually, when I was preparing this, I, my memory went back to one of the funniest childhood memories that I have, and it was of my dad trying to eat a very hot meat pie in a car with disastrous consequences. And I knew that I was courting disaster in laughing as hard as I did. But in the end, thanks be to God, my dad also saw the funny side of his antics in trying to get hot pieces of pie off his bare legs all the while trying to negotiate the vehicle. Not a good place to eat meals, seriously. Karen and I spent a week with an American family in the 1990s when we were over there on a kind of a sabbatical, and we ate one meal at home for that whole week. Nearly all of our meals were purchased at fast food outlets and were then consumed in the car en route to the next engagement, and I suspect it was not an unusual week for them. You know, ironically, in the present profusion of baking and cooking programs that you see on TV, with celebrity chefs seeming to dominate our screens and topping the best-selling book lists, the truth of the matter is we are cooking at home less and less than we ever did before, eating out more and more than we ever did before. Now, I know COVID-19 might have put a dent in those statistics. Whether that remains to be true, uh, remains uh, true will, will yet to be seen. 
One in every four eat at least one fast food meal a day. US households spend approximately the same amount in terms of groceries and fast food outlets. Approximately the same amount. One recent study on our eating habits asked people how many times per month they sat down to an evening meal as a family. And the answer was once. Robert Putman, in his uh, landmark study and book entitled Bowling Alone, said there has been a 33% decrease in people eating together over the last three decades and a 45% decrease in people entertaining friends at their home. And he commented, shared meals slow things down, and clearly we in the West do not want to be slowed down. In the Middle East, an evening meal can easily last between two and four hours. Even 60 years ago in our culture, the average time for an evening meal was an hour and a half. Today, it's between 12 and 20 minutes tops, and it's usually eaten on our laps in front of a screen. Sociologist Cody Dellastrati claimed that the loss of the table in our families has had quantifiable negative effects, both physically and psychologically, on our families. And he goes on to claim in his research that the number one predictor for parents raising kids who were drug-free, healthy, kind human beings was frequent family meals. The number one predictor of academic success for elementary or primary age children was frequent family meals. The number one shaping influence on the developing vocabulary of younger children, join me, was frequent family meals. The best safeguard against childhood obesity, frequent family meals. The best prescription to prevent eating disorders among young adolescents, frequent family meals in a relaxed atmosphere. The, most vari the variable most associated with low incidence of depression and suicidal thoughts among 11 to 18 year olds was, you guessed it, frequent family meals. Now, you might wanna say, well, I think that's overdone a little bit. Might well be, <clears throat> but it is clear that frequent family meals are a really good and healthy thing to do. Could I please have a glass of water? <clears throat> Speaking of eating and drinking, you can bring a cookie too if you like. <laughs> I think that's why Len Sweet says the table is the most sacred piece of furniture in every home. And he goes on to say, at the table where food and stories are passed from one person to another, one generation to another, that is where each of us learns who we are, where we came from, what we can be, to whom we belong, and to what we are called. I don't know how many of you saw, thank you. <clears throat> no cookie, no cookie, okay. I'd go for a meat pie, but the results could be disastrous. <laughs> Some of you may have seen uh, the documentary Chasing Ga uh, Great, by, uh, uh, which was on Richie McCaw, McCaw the ex-All Black captain. And McCaw spoke of a time early in his life when he was sitting at a dining table with his uncle and they began talking about his rugby playing future. And the uncle challenged the young man to imagine his future pathway in the game. And McCaw rode out on a table napkin where he wanted to be at what time. And he ended with the goal of not just being an all black, but being a great all black. And he says, I still have that napkin. The future 
the identity were imagined at a table. Meals matter, food matters, the table matters. There are few acts more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. And someone with whom we are sharing a meal is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. In fact, the word companion comes from the Latin, com, which means together, panis, which means bread. Food connects and it has a capacity to heal. John Horish, who was a historian of the Mennonite church, tells this story. He says, during the years that the Anabaptist groups were being persecuted throughout Europe, an old Mennonite minister in Bern, Switzerland, showed the power of a meal to heal and to restore. One morning, the minister woke up to hear men on the roof of his house. They were tearing off the roof tiles of the, uh, of the house and throwing them to the ground in an attempt to drive him out of town. He arose from bed and asked his wife to prepare them a good breakfast, and he then went outside and insisted that they come in and eat since they'd been working so hard. <laughs> Shamefaced, they came in and sat down at the table. He prayed for them and their families at Grace, then served them breakfast, and after they'd eaten, they went out and picked up all the roof tiles and put them back. <laughs> a more recent example of the power of a meal to heal concerns two basketball greats. Anybody who's interested in the sport of basketball knows the names of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Larry Bird and Magic Johnson were fierce, arch competitors on the basketball court through their high school years, their college years, and culminating in the NBA. Johnson played for the LA Lakers, Bird played for the Boston Celtics, and their rivalry and dislike for each other became legendary and it seemed to grow with intensity each passing year. Now, somewhere along this journey, Converse, the company that sponsored the footwear of both of these players, required them to shoot a commercial together. Bird insisted that the commercial be shot at his farm in Indiana, and apparently the commercial began rather icily with the superstars circling each other. They broke for lunch and headed off in different directions, but Larry Bird's mother appeared and announced that she'd made lunch and, announced, uh, and invited them all to the table. In Larry Bird's words, he said, it was at the table that I discovered Irvin Johnson. I never liked Magic Johnson very much, but Irvin I liked a lot. Irvin didn't come out until I met him at mum's table. There is something about the table. Nelson Mandela once said, have breakfast all alone, share lunch with your friends, invite your enemies to dinner. If you get a dinner invitation, don't, don't, don't think about that, okay? <laughs> could, could ruin it. The story of Jesus is the story of the table, and you cannot read his story without seeing the vital role that the table played in so many of his dialogues and in so many important moments. As I said to you before, Luke's gospel in particular has this incredible emphasis on food and meals and tables. There are at least 50 references in the 24 chapters of the 23 parables that Luke tells, 15 of them involve food. In Luke chapter 5, he eats with the tax collectors. In Luke chapter 7, he's anointed by a woman of dubious character in the home of Simon the Pharisee at a meal. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is the host for 5,000 people. In Luke chapter 10, he's at Mary and Martha's home eating. In Luke chapter 7, he upbraids, uh, sorry, 11, he upbraids the Pharisees and lawyers at a meal. In Luke 14, at a meal, Jesus urges people to invite the poor to their feasts. At Luke 
in Luke 15, the prodigal returns home to a meal. In chapter 19, Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' place for a meal. Chapter 22, we have the Last Supper. Chapter 24, the risen Christ shares a meal with two disciples at Emmaus. The table from start to finish. Jesus ate what he liked, with whom he liked, where he liked, and it was the sheer openness of his table, his table talk and his table manners that ultimately got him killed. He broke all the rules of the day. Ate on the wrong days, ate with dirty hands, ate certainly with the wrong people. Look, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, his table manners were unforgivable. The Pharisees had no problem. They knew that the kingdom of God was going to be a party. They knew that the kingdom of God was going to be a feast and a banquet. There was no issue there. Their issue was the guest list. Who was going to be there? And the people that Jesus chose to eat with was just a massive hurdle for them. The Pharisees were the original food police. Their concern wasn't calories, as our present-day food police are concerned with. Their concern was contamination. Now, it's really easy for us. We do it regularly without even thinking. We, we demonize the Pharisees. We, we beat up on them exegetically. But I suspect that if we lived in their day, we, or at the very least I, could have very easily been one of them. They were born as a renewal movement, and they had a great concern for God's promises and purposes for Israel. They were profoundly committed to the scriptures. They believed in personal holiness. They believed in the supernatural, unlike the liberal Pharisee, uh, Sadducees. Let me, let me kind of bring this home a little to us, if I may. I think we can understand the Pharisees a bit more having gone through the season that we've just gone through. In many cultures, meals represent what we call boundary markers. They mark the boundaries between different levels of intimacy and acceptance. And the food laws of the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, weren't so much about health regulations, they were about boundary maintenance. Policing the food that went into the individual bodies was a way of policing the corporate social body. See, Israel were called to be a holy people, a distinct people, and the Jewish food laws not only symbolized the cultural boundaries, they helped create them. It wasn't easy for Jewish people to eat with Gentile neighbors. You know, their food had to be kosher. It had to be prepared in a kosher manner. Different utensils were and actually still are used for meat and dairy. Food had to be prepared in specific ways. Blood had to be properly drained and on and on it went. And if faithfully followed, these dietary regulations inevitably meant that Israelites could not, at least not easily, enter into intimate relationships and the shared meals created. It was just simply too much of a hassle to eat with Gentiles, even if they wanted to. Karen and I know something of how that works. Karen is a celiac, which means she's allergic to gluten. She can't eat food that contains gluten. Now, while that's not so big of a hurdle nowadays, 20 years ago, there weren't too many places or people who understood that, and rather than go through the laborious routine of trying to explain the condition and find out what foods they had that could and couldn't be eaten, it was simply easy for us just not to go out. And so that situation created for us something of an unwanted boundary. You know, the central question of Judaism at this time was with whom can we eat? 
present holiness, future expectations were all bound up with this question. For them, doing lunch was doing theology. And the Pharisees were deeply, profoundly committed to Israel being all that God called them to be, to be the people that God wanted them to be. They believed that God wanted Israel to be pure, and they needed to be pure before they could be restored, and they were zealous about it. Eating with people outside the community was highly likely to create contamination. And their mantra was, if we don't eat with them, we won't become like them. And as I'm thinking about this this week, I think of all people, we should at least understand their concern with contamination. Given the season that we've been through with COVID-19, we are paranoid about contamination. We wash our hands and utensils interminably. We are fastidious in keeping our social distancing, keeping away from people who might be contaminated. We use the shopping trolleys and we disinfect them before and after and so on. We are concerned with, with contamination and we know that it comes from proximity. If you come into people or a person or an object that has been exposed to this virus, you're liable to contract it. It's so spreadable. And didn't we get totally ticked off with people who violated these standards? They broke their bubbles with impunity, and we were so annoyed. (laughs) You know, they are putting us all at risk. They should be arrested. And we dobbed them in, didn't we? Didn't you? No? Perhaps that season and that understanding should give us some sympathy toward the Pharisees because they had exactly the same concerns we had. They understood that throughout history, when infection came into contact with health, health became infected. The clean became unclean. And they believed deeply that what was true in the physical realm was true also in the spiritual one. And that the healthy and the pure could become unhealthy and impure through contact. Hence the rules. Wash your hands. Wash the dishes. Wash the utensils. Stay away from contaminated people and contaminated places. And then comes Jesus, the bubble breaker. With reckless abandon, he puts everybody at risk. He eats with sinners. He keeps company who are beyond the bounds of respectable society, not just social respectability, but with, with religious connotations. This isn't proper covenantal behavior. You are not being loyal to the traditions and the aspirations of Israel. He didn't wash his hands. He didn't wash his utensils. He didn't wear gloves. He didn't keep the two-meter zone. Dob him in. And if that doesn't work, slap him with some heavier penalties. If we don't stop him, he will become a super spreader. We, We get it, don't we? And it made me start to think maybe I could have been a Pharisee because I got pretty ticked off with some people. Maybe that says more about me than you. Let me try and change the analogy to give you some sense of how offensive Jesus' table manners were to, his, to the Pharisees, to his generations. Change the analogy. In the late 1800s, a wealthy plantation owner from Alabama extends a formal invitation to some Afro-American cotton-picking slaves. Please, come to the mansion for Sunday dinner. It will be preceded by cocktails. It will be followed by several hours of brandy, cigars, and conversation. 
Do you have any sense of the outrage that would have caused in Southern society at that time? I mean, the KKK would have been apoplectic. Social and racial distinctions were rigidly inflexible, and any indiscretion or violation would at very best mean a loss of reputation. It would have been irredeemable, irredeemable or at worst, it probably would have more likely meant the mansion would have been burnt down with its inhabitants inside. That would be something akin to the scandal that Jesus created in the first century. And, and understand, he's not some Mr. Magoo-like figure who's going around uh, unintentionally offending everybody, you know, bumping into things, oops, oops, I'm sorry, oh, rock that over, oh, I'm so sorry. Some of you are thinking, who the flipping heck is Mr. Magoo? <laughs> Ask your grandparents, okay, they'll tell you. Jesus is being intentionally provocative. This is not Jesus meek and mild, this is Jesus spoiling for a fight. And I suspect one of the reasons for Jesus' prov provocative approach and his outright disdain for the food laws as they were presently being expressed was that he saw very clearly that the Pharisees had mistaken means and ends. The Levitical food laws were meant, were, were, were meant to be the means to the end. They were intended to help create a boundary around a holy, separated people who would be distinctly different from the culture around about them. And, and the point was that that difference would be divinely attractive and that the boundary would be porous, a semi-permeable membrane through which people could easily flow. The Pharisees, in their zeal to be a separated people, had made that semi-permeable membrane watertight. Nobody could get in, and as sure as heck, nobody was supposed to go out either. Instead of understanding that Israel had been blessed to be a blessing, Israel had become insular and self-righteously smug. Fastidious obedience to the food laws had become an end in itself rather than being a means to an end. And before you again get critical of the Pharisees, friends, it can so easily happen in renewal movements. It can so easily happen in people who want to serve God and serve God's purposes. And over time, the reading of our five chapters is a box to be ticked rather than a heart and a spirit to be imbibed of. And we tithe to tick the box rather than giving our resources, all the while knowing that God wants to create generous people. And we end up allowing our spiritual disciplines to become points of pride and self-righteousness, ends rather than understanding that they are simply the means to the end, which is to know God and to make him known. Not only had the food laws as expressed by the Pharisees become an impenetrable barrier to the Gentile outsiders, it had also created a major barrier within Israel between the rich and the poor. Because effectively, only the relatively wealthy had the time and the money to do all the ritual washings and cleansings that the oral law demanded. It's hard to be ritually clean in a slum. What, what's happening here is we've got bourgeoisie spirituality. This is renewal for the rich. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, if you gave a dish to a poor person, a poor Israelite, it became unclean. They were considered the great unwashed, the hoi polloi. They were despised, they were excluded, they were reduced to second-class citizenship, and they were excluded from the kingdom party. 
The Pharisees agreed that the kingdom of God was a party and that an invitation had been extended and that it was possible to attend, but then they said, if you want to attend, you have to get cleaned up first. Get right first by doing all of these things, then possibly you may get a chance to enter. Jesus comes and starts handling out invitations to come as you are. Don't worry about the barriers of the oral law and the zealous that the zealous Pharisees have erected. Ignore them and come as you are. You know what? Grace turns the world, especially the religious world, upside down. And it always profoundly offends those people who think they've worked so hard for their invitation and other people should do the same. I got myself right. They should do the same. Jesus' meals were enacted grace. The Pharisees thought he was lowering the standard and inviting contamination. Jesus introduced a grace that was radically shocking and subversive. He changed the theater of the clean and the unclean from the external to the internal moral realm. He radically reversed the old order, and he said the first will be last and the last will be first. Under the old order, the unclean contaminated the clean. In the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Prophet says, ask the priest this question about the law. If one of you is carrying a holy sacrifice in his robes and happens to brush against some bread or wine or meat, will it too become holy? No, the the police, the priest replied. Holiness does not pass to other things that way. Then Haggai asked, but if someone touches a dead person and so becomes ceremonially impure and then brushes against something, does it become contaminated? The priest said, Yes, it flows one way. Contamination goes from the unclean to the clean, and it makes them unclean. Jesus makes it very clear, I'm changing that. I'm tipping that order by my grace on its head. And through his ministry and by his grace, it's now holiness that becomes contagious. I don't know whether you've thought of this, but in Luke chapter 5, it talks about Jesus healing a leper. One day in a certain village he was visiting, there was a man with an advanced case of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell to the ground before him, face downwards in the dust, begging to be healed. Sir, he said, if you only will, you can clear me of every trace of my disease. Jesus reached out and touched the man and said, of course I will be healed. And the leprosy left him instantly. Then Jesus instructed him to go at once without telling anyone what had happened and be examined by the Jewish priest. Offer the sacrifice of Moses that Moses' law requires for lepers who are healed, he said. This will prove to everyone that you're well. Under the old order, leprosy made people ceremonially unclean. They were to be avoided. You can see that in Numbers chapter 5, verse 2. They had to wear torn clothing to identify themselves, and when they encountered other people, they had to put their hand across their lip and say, unclean! unclean, and people would know they had to give them more than two meters distance. They're contaminated. We don't want to touch them. Jesus goes up and touches them. Everybody would say, that makes you unclean. Jesus said, no, that makes them whole. And he was made well. Jesus turned those notions on their head. And when the Pharisee said, why are you eating with these people? He said, because I'm a physician and I need to be with the sick. Because I'm a saviour and I need to be with sinners. Because I'm contagious and they need health. The Pharisees could not understand it, could not get it. The meals that Jesus engaged in are a foretaste, a picture of that great end time feast where he will welcome outsiders and the marginalised and he will refuse entry. 
to the pride-filled self-righteous. Jesus' meals with people were a sign of friendship, and his excess food in the eyes at least of the Pharisees and his excess grace seemed to be linked together. Meals with him were enacted grace. They were community. They were mission. I want to finish just by suggesting to you that I don't think mission has to be actually complicated. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. That throws a whole new light on Jesus' command in John chapter 20 verse 21 where he said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. How did he send Jesus? Eating and drinking. So, you know, I think I can do this. <laughs> he doesn't ask us to buttonhole strangers cold on the street. Do you know Jesus, like we used to do? You don't have to go door to door. You don't have to memorize some spiritual conversation. You know, when somebody says, good morning, beautiful day. Yes, and do you know the one who made it? Are you born again? If you're only born once, you die twice, but if you're born twice, you die once, and they're looking at you going, what? <laughs> now, it might be, and you evangelists in the, in the group, you're thinking, yeah, I you know, that, that's terrible, Don. You're just discouraging people from sharing the gospel. Look, I'm not trying to. Uh, I, I admit, I don't think I have the gift of evangelism, or perhaps more likely, I'm a coward. I'm not quite sure which one is true. What I can do, actually, what I enjoy doing, I'm not going to boast, but I'm good at eating and drinking. <laughs> As some of you can possibly tell. And I can tell, just looking at you, that some of you are good at it too. <laughs> I can do mission. And so can you. It's not that complicated. I think over the COVID-19 era, some of us did mission with our neighbours. Of course, at a two-metre distance. But we sat and we ate and we drank. Mission is not complicated. Jesus, the Son of Man, came eating and drinking. And it's amazing, over the good food, over the good wine or the good lemonade, whatever it is that is your preference, what kind of comes out in conversation. I'll never forget inviting a friend of mine, actually it was a neighbour, I played squash and business house cricket with him, and he'd been through a tough time, his marriage was breaking up, and we invited him for a meal. And as he sat down and as we were eating together, there was no conversation about spiritual things, there was a lapse in conversation, he said, Don, what made you do this? And I said, do what? And he said, become a Christian. Like, oh, wow. Don't have to have a spiritual conversation, it memorised, it just... It came eating and drinking. It's an act of grace. And I want to encourage you to eat and drink. Not too much <laughs> of either. And, and, you know, and there's always somebody who will say to me, but Don, you know, you, you know, that's not a good idea if you're not firm in your faith and you, you get with the wrong people. You can become like the people. You, there's something in what the Pharisees said. And you, you just read the wisdom literature of Proverbs and so on, and it's true. You know, you, you do have to be careful. But sometimes we've been so careful that we've stayed away. And Jesus came, I think, to restore the balance. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.